1: Welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon.
0: And me, William Durinpole. This is all
1: very exciting and cosy, isn't it? (laughs) Look at us all in one place together. I will be punching you at some point. (laughs) Because you're here. I'm within punching (laughs) the air distance. You're in the kill zone. Listen, we are joined today, we're very thrilled by this, by Peter Moore, the author of Endeavour. And if you listen to our slavery series, you will know, because I have... Banged on about this quite a lot. The Francis Barber that episode, Peter, that we did with you, was absolutely one of my favourites. But we're here today because it's part of our Christmas. Oh, please tell me you know this Christmas Carol. I saw all Three Ships Come on. Do you know that one?
2: I do, oh, but not well I, enough oh, to sing it. You're unfortunately, not sing, no. Peter. <laughs> no. But if you want to go, solo yeah. baritone. Uh, <laughs> I, do, <laughs> I, I, I tell you, I, a few shanties later on, maybe. Well, but, I mean, it was um, like it
1: was a thing. I said, look, Christmas, we'll do Three Ships, the history of Three Ships, and everyone looked at me like. Huh? I swear. We know a way in the manger, but you know it. That's great. So you're one of our great ships and the ship that you've written about, which William, it now says so he said to me before we started, please leave room for me fanboying. So Endeavour, so which is such I a great story.
0: Just have to say yeah. that this is one of my all-time favourite history books. And I read it over a very, very nice family holiday in Goa with the sea crashing on the kind of beach, on the kind of the dark beach volcanic stone of the beach below with palm trees. And it was the perfect place to read this great book. And occasionally our regular listeners will know that I do do recommend a book, above all books. This is one of those. I mean, he says
1: recommend, he means rave obsessively about, (laughs) and yours has been one of those books. But this
0: is an extraordinary book. And I just also, as someone writing narrative history and biography, I've learned a lot of how to do it. It's a book by an author who's clearly Completely obsessed by the subject and lost himself in uh, the rabbit hole of the endeavour and all the archives and the business of how you build a ship and the creak mm. of the timbers and the splash of the waves on the outside and the barrier reef. And it's just, it's one of the great reads and particularly good for Christmas time. So, yes. anyway, that's okay. just me doing it, my little you, sales pitch. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. You're done? <laughs>
1: we're past this, now.
0: The, I might have a little outbreak again that's later fine. on. That's <laughs> fine. We're, we're quite prepared.
1: But, but for those who don't know, I mean, the Endeavour was a research vessel at the time of enlightenment, and the name that is inextricably linked and why the timbers of this ship are so important is James Cook. Tell mm. us a bit more about that.
2: But I'll, I'll leave Cook to one side for a moment because I think the ship... Is my central area of focus And you I think start with the acorn I start with the acorn <laughs> it, has, um, it
1: literally starts with Let him talk <laughs> Let him just, talk It's such a clever idea let So, him talk. so my, my big
2: top line for you Is yes. my claim I do not know Whatever ships you picked For your series of ships My ship I will make a case For being the most important ship In the history Of British exploration Which is and um, fighting
1: words Peter I'm just saying But carry on
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, so we can interrogate that later on um, um, Endeavour Beagle Bing presumably a a runner up. I, I was <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so it, it's particularly known for this one voyage which happened between uh, 1768 and 1771 which was the first of Cook's big three voyages into the South Seas which was a period name for the Pacific Ocean um we we call it today. Um, Darwin later said that um Cook single-handedly added a hemisphere to the known world now that's victorian um like kind of discovery narrative now we look at things quite differently we look at things from a multiplicity of viewpoints and cook is obviously a big participant in this and um let me tell you about the book and where the book came from um in in a structural sense i was interested my my mother my mother comes from the north uh yorkshire coast and i'd known about cook all my life and um and i'd read a lot of biographies of him and i was always intrigued by a line in the the histories and and the the narrative line always followed cook okay or maybe banks who's another character we'll get to shortly wonderful character yeah wonderful character and so there'd be a line saying that they needed a ship to go to the south seas they looked around and they got this one which was purchased and it was repurposed and fitted out, and they called it Endeavour, and they gave it this new name. Previously, they said it used to be a coal vessel in the coastal trade, and it was. It was at that moment that the the explanation kind of stopped. And and you, as writers, know this that where your curiosity is really peaked, you've you got to kind of follow. Have to find out. Yeah, and and so I suppose it was that elemental interest in. And shifting identities, like a David Bowie kind of reinvention. How can this thing which go which carrying it? Dory becomes Ziggy Stardust. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then move on to Aladdin's yeah. And yeah. this this actually happened quite a lot with ships. They were they didn't move through different identities, they they took on different names, they were assigned to different kind of roles. And this one in particular I thought was interesting because okay, there's there's a prequel here in a way to the exploration voyage. And what made the story really exciting? is there was a sequel to the exploration and that story is also not known. which is not known really at all so i mean specialist academics and there are people who are working on this now we'll get to this part of the story later on as yeah. well we'll say but but really this is the thing so you have one object which has three different names goes through these three different identities in three different areas or theatres of history, if you like. And there was, I mean, when I started writing a few big books at the time, one of them was Edmund de Waal's uh, Hair with the Ambrise, which was the story of the Netsuke, uh, some of you might know. So object gorgeous, history. Gorgeous, book. And then there was this book which the British Museum had brought out, and it was The History of the World in 100 Objects. Oh, you might yes, all know Neil this. McGregor. Neil McGregor, and they, oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, um, hugely successful, much hugely successful. Book.
1: But also just talismanic objects that you can touch and they're kind of portals or portals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this whole so idea like, no, of like
2: yeah. the, the tactile nature of an yeah. object and you could you know, it's like the touching of something. And I remember reading Richard Holmes, a great biographer, writing about Shelley's guitar, for example, years One ago. and so.
0: great writers again?
2: Yeah. yeah, and 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 it was this idea that if you had the object, and the object takes you into the history. And I thought, well, rather, let's kind of invert the British Museum thing. Rather than having the history of the world in a um, hundred objects, what about? One object with a 100 worlds inside it.
1: But that was my. It's such a superb and pure, it's kind of a pure idea. And Mm. it's, it's kind of a, it's also a laser like focus. So, I mean, you mentioned the acorn. Tell Let's me, start, with the, acorn, they start yeah. with the acorn.
2: The bloody acorns. Right, okay. Yeah. So, um, now,
0: Coast. I have to say... The moors, the winds sweeping down from the <laughs> moors. And All the, right, Heathcliff. The Cliff. crashing, <laughs> and the
1: crashing <laughs>
0: waves
2: against the Whitby. Let <laughs> me take you back to 2016 Pier, when yeah. I was... Uh, so, you yeah. might remember the whole country was convulsed by Brexit. During that really... Epochal moment for our country when everything was changing. I was looking for the position of some acorns in a forest in in Yorkshire. Yeah. That's what I was really obsessed by. And uh, I have to say, I mean, you've been very kind about the book, and I'm really grateful for that. That's not everyone loves the book because some people read the bit on acorns and say, "What the hell is this all about?" Because I did they go acornist. to uh, yeah, they, they're not not fancying the acorn part of the history. But I thought, well, well you know, if you're going to do, line than
1: that. <laughs> <Come on.
0: laughs> if okay, you're no,
1: Nuts. Uh,
0: I mean,
1: they're nuts. I mean, no, it's okay. Go on, carry on. Might yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if my idea was to, yeah. um,
2: was to tell a, not a cradle to grave biography, but a kind of acorn to seabed biography, I thought I have to start off with these acorns. Okay. Where did they come from? So the ship was comprised of 80 or 90% oak timber. Okay. And this was an interesting idea in itself because you have... Like, um, you know, the, the character of the wood, different oaks produce different characters. And then, and, and, you know, there's so much, if anyone's read, say, Patrick O'Brien or, or those kind of sea stories, and they talk a lot Mikey about timbers. yeah, the characters of ships, they yes. sometimes will work in different ways. You'll get hard ships, mm. you'll get soft ships, you'll get, you know, all sorts of different things. And and nowadays Changes we live in a the way they cut through the water. But day. just think about it. and And. In the way that we live in, a, in an age of standardisation now, where things are so similar, you know, one mm. is next is the same to the next. And um, actually with ships, they weren't. And um, one of the big moments in Endeavour's life is when she collides with the Great Barrier Reef. Now, we'll get back to this later on. This well, is important. You're doing a Dalrymple. What <laughs> no, are
1: you doing? But, but this He's is important. very Oh, like, my we goodness.
2: Should, we should give the story this, this away at that too. Yeah. Yeah. But um, at this point, so the, the, the ship is balanced in this hugely perilous moment for about 23 hours. What oak timbers it was made from really matter. Because if it was made out of wood that was flawed or weak, the history of the world might have been quite different. Just don't tell that
1: story yet, because we're getting to that story. But previously on this conversation, (laughs) you were scrabbling around on the eve of Brexit looking for acorns. And how did you manage to, I suppose assure yourself that you were in the right patch for the right trees, for the right acorns that might have given birth to this ship?
2: Well, the answer is that I couldn't be sure in the end because the records don't exist. They may not have existed to begin with. It was a very informal trade. Um, the man who, who built the Earl of Pembroke, which was the first name for the ship, did not leave any certain trace but I did want to look into this as far as I could because well for the reasons that I just told you then and also there was this you know, this kind of national panic at the time in the 18th century this idea that Britain was being deforested okay that the old medieval oaks were vanishing that something was gone it was like an early sense of environmental panic oh, gosh, and,
1: I, so right then people were saying this is not our land people yeah. are so the 18th
2: century is often seen as a kind of blithe and beautiful eucolic century. Yeah. Actually, it, was a, it was a century of almost incessant warfare. There was a lot of chips timber that was needed for building all of these ships. And um, a lot of forests... British Navy at its peak. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of a lot of the old chases and hearse yeah. and woods and forests were disappearing within the portion of people's lifetime. And this generated... A very early sense of environmentalism, mm. you know, like the environmental movement, can probably be traced back to this moment, where you know people think of the sylvan beauty of medieval England mm. and Robin Hood and his merry men merry mm. in, in Among the Oak Trees. And like parish oaks, for example, every parish might have its own distinct oak, and that would have... Charles s- II sheltering in. Yeah, the- exactly. And that's actually an important story. All the Royal Oak pubs that were made after that, which mm. were almost providential idea, that at uh, this moment of great national trauma like an oak lent a, it's a benevolent helping it's, hand yes
1: you can still shelter and then the of course oak.
2: you had oak, yeah. oak apple day and things like yeah. this and so i i worked out that, that you know you read the literature you find out pretty quickly that for oak timber to be used in ships it had to be at least 100 years old because that's the point mm. when it becomes i mean it's just sufficient and it continues in that period for another hundred years right. before it begins to degrade so you've got a window of time
1: but you're talking about mighty trees that people have loved and and not just they've become used to but their fathers knew their grandfathers knew you know so these are these are sort of the heartbeats of what it is to be Britain and British you know yeah. the oak came to represent more that more
0: locally than lo- what used so, to be part of your village or, yeah or, or yeah
1: precisely so okay so we, we don't know which acorn but we know roughly where the acorn came from tell us about you know the the, the the timber that was taken and who starts to fashion it into a ship.
2: I'll tell you quickly. I think I know where the acorns came from. And um, it is a site of a go ape nowadays in North Yorkshire. Go
1: ape, for those who don't know, it's, uh, I've taken my boys there. Mm. It's a, uh, it's a, do you York know this? Is a, this is an important uh, we've, done, <laughs> we've done it. I've done it. I've done it. I had to go. My little one was a bit scared, but these are zip wires yeah. between treetops And you climb up to the top and you have to wear a harness and you just basically fling yourself to what feels like almost certain death. (laughs) Children love it. They just love it.
2: Well, if you want to know my reasoning, there's loads of that in the book. But um, yeah, they eventually came to Whitby. And please, a portrait of Whitby.
0: I went to school in Yorkshire and it was always one of my favourite destinations. You come across the moors. yeah, And there is the Abbey, St. Hilda. Cayman, yeah. the the cowman, making his Song. poetry and songs yeah. In, yeah. In, in the shed. Dracula coming ashore there
2: but Yeah, this in, I think Whitby, be be anyone, so yeah. um, yeah. um, anyone who goes... Um, I just remember, I think A.A. Gill's last column for the Sunday Times was his favourite restaurant in... In England, and he chose fish and chips in Whitby. So today it's very much known as that. Whitby is a very small place in in a sense, very isolated. So the moors kind of come all right the way up right up to it. Um, and then it's there right on the kind of northern coast of North Yorkshire, facing out towards Scandinavia. Yeah, exactly. And so in in a way because the terrain is so, you know, kind of demanding to cross, it had a distinct regional identity of its own. In a way it was sometimes more connected to places like Norway, you could make an argument yeah, I mean it it wasn't. But yeah, th- yeah. Th- there was the sea paths were easier to cross than getting to the the markets of Pickering or down to the society of York. or I do. There was a very early on a Whitby philosophical society. Yeah, exactly. And you go
0: there, and there's this wonderful museum with all the Ammonites from the cliffs
2: nearby yeah and there's there's the alligator and it's one of these places where I mean it really is cabinet of curiosity place Mm. where they have the glass Victorian cabinets and there's a hand of glory there and things like this it's still worth going to today absolutely Um, I think the idea that it was a spiritual place, a bit like Lindisfarne as well, it had that, you know, monastic community there. But one thing that was really good about Whitby is it was a haven for ships in storms, and around that built up this port, which was, you know, really important. It became a, a kind of service station on on that eastern coast between the coal collieries of Newcastle, where the coal came down, come down the Eastern Coast to the markets in London. So you think of all the growth in London. When from I was
0: studying all the Scots going out to India, it's very interesting. None of them go by road. We all think, you know, you, just get, you get on the train or go on the, go on the A1 or whatever. Yeah. You don't. None of that was there. No. And so what you did was you got a ship in Leith. Yeah, and you went down, stopped at Whitby, and went on or Newcastle, and 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 went uh, in, into London. Yeah, like, and that's that one of the things. So yeah.
2: my mother's family come from just a little bit south of Whitby in a place called Filey, and I remember standing on that beautiful beach, which was um, Catherine Bronte's favourite beach. It's and beautiful.
0: Rambo writes a poem
2: about Promontoir. Oh, really? Uh, but just like looking into that eastern horizon and seeing how um, it's kind of this weird diffuse North Sea light but how empty it was and imagining what it was like back in with all, of these, with all these ships just going I know, past I know I know exactly
1: like what you mean like a constant
2: train yeah of, I of mean like
1: busy like busy and loud and smelly yeah. and you know just vibrant carrying
2: all these Dalrymples from oh Scotland. god we'll come to them mm. in a minute no doubt no. <laughs> but can we
1: talk about you know so, so the Great Oak is felled do we know roughly the year that it would have been yeah with so your, so Estimation. we some
2: things we know actually yeah. in quite good detail. So the first builder was a man called Thomas Fishburn, yeah. who was a very very competent, upwardly mobile shipwright. Shipwright wasn't a very high status profession, but it was one way you could actually become quite wealthy. So it was like a blue collar job we might call it today, but he was he he'd kind of built himself out of nothing and fishbone ships were really good solid things. Cook would always sail in fishbone ships to the South Seas. So this is the maths I worked on. So we know that Endeavour, Earl of Pembroke really at this point, was launched in the summer of 1764. So the Oaks, the built were acorns 100 years ago at the time of the restoration. So that's kind of that bit of history. And um, the process of building would have taken a few months at least but it wouldn't have been notable. It was the kind of thing that was happening continuously at Whitby which was a shipbuilding.
1: So so Fishburne is kind of the man people go to for good ships. He's Mm. kind of, you know, the I don't know what you call it, the Henry Ford of ships that work, right? But then tell me a bit about Milner, uh, Thomas Milner who is a really interesting character who's quite important in the Early days of
2: endeavor yeah well he's the first master so again we're in this community of Whitby ship owners and shipbuilders and this is Milner's world really so he is someone who leaves very faint trace in the records you can see his lists of ships but we don't know anything about him he's just a kind of hologrammatic character I mean he he you know, he's the master, which would be the person in command. This is in, in a merchant vessel. This is the person at the top. And he would sail with maybe eight or nine kind of people with him on these colliers, they were called as a catch-all term. And he'd been doing this for years and years and years. So he was quite old by this point. And one of the best, so there's a few things that I can tell you about Milner, which are interesting. And both of them are by processes of deduction. First of all, he never had any significant accident. And that was what, that's a big deal. Which is a really An big deal. An accident on the high seas is not great. But yeah. his, his job, it was a really dangerous job yeah. to go down through all of those shoals off like uh, East Anglia. And he never had any significant problem. If his job was to take coal to London and bring the ships back again, he did it time and time and time again. The other thing I found about him, which was really fascinating for me, is that he was illiterate. And we know this because in, I think, Whitby Museum, they had a an acknowledgement of a rec- uh, of a loan that he was acknowledging and beneath this it had an M for Milner and beneath that was just a cross and it said mm. Mark so once we know that he's a literate you can kind of build a bit of a wider of where biography where he might have
1: come from because he was okay. not
2: educated but,
1: but you know. know the fact I mean you, you do say in your book that you know the fact that he has this extraordinary record of not having disasters because it's quite hard means that he ran a tight ship to sort of you know yeah. abuse and, a, a and the, yeah.
2: at this point Whitby was always described by the Georgians as a nursery of seamen so This was a place where the best sailors came from. Lots of reasons for this. I don't have time to get into today. Once you've mastered those heavy seas, the North Sea, you you can do anything. Exactly. Well, this this is it. So there was, um, these colliers were lightly manned. They were a little bit,
1: what do they look like? I mean, you're saying collier, but I, 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 have, I want to know what it looked like and how big it was and how many people could go on it. Give me an idea. Yeah,
2: so let's tell you about the Ulla Pembroke as she was launched. It's like hundred foot long, three masts. So you have your mizzen, uh, so your four main and mizzen masts. So they've got the three masts. It's a very tight, confined space. You might think of ships of having various decks which go down. Actually, colliers were generally hollow. They were built expressly to carry cargo. the largest amount of cargo. Yeah. And so so you'd have these kind of small dog hole like areas at the front on the Fauxhall. Dog fo'c'sle. hole? Yeah, they are, like little, really, much, uh, yeah. you are reading too much Master Commander. <laughs> yeah, sorry, too much Master Commander. But um, yeah, they'd have these Two little like, dog holes. Uh, so, but it was also, it was a social space. So it was all quite defined. So as the master, Milner would be, you know, towards the rear on the quarterdeck. And you'd have the the young sailors would be at the front. And that would be, you know, something that was really important. There'd be a strict hierarchy, an order of command, all these things.
1: How many people could fit on a ship like that?
2: So with Endeavour, about 100. Mm-hmm. But if we go back to this point... Probably about ten. So you can see, ten men can, only need to take a sip all the way down. Yeah, exactly. To London. So you can see why they got very good very quickly because it was all about economics. So right. the, the fewer salaries the, you have to yes, pay, the more, the more, more cargo that you, you can made. carry. Right. There's a great. Um, I don't know if you have the ability to do this or whatnot, but there's a there's a Turner seascape which shows these colliers being filled with coal on on at Shields on the River Tyne, which is where the coal would come from the, the mines, from, from the, the collieries, the Northumberland um, and yeah. And and, they, and they'd load, up, load them up there. And there's this kind of moment of exchange where you can see there's money being passed between one and the other. It's a kind of nighttime scene and there's like burning. It's I mean, it's one of Turner's beautiful social pictures, really. Do you know
1: what we can do? We can put it on our newsletter for Club. If you're a club member, um, you might get Arrest, to see this.
2: Yeah. And Dan, they came to London where they yeah. were where they were unloaded.
1: Okay, so in 1764, she makes her, her maiden voyage.
0: Just the, the, the boat again, it's broad, round, Sturdy and flat-bottomed. And that's oh, yes. important okay. for Very important. what will come. So she's not sleek and beautiful, but she's no. an incredibly sturdy boat that's built yeah, they- for heavy seas.
2: Built to last and to need very few repairs. This thing about the flat bottom, flat bottoms are important in this story. Let's, let's Can get it that. You make the that, let's go. Rocking
1: world go around Anyway, carry <laughs> yeah. it,
2: doesn't, it doesn't sound important, but the world was made what on brilliant. flat bottom. That. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, go on, do, go on. Don't worry about me.
2: Pretty, pretty <laughs> moment. Yeah. They could be beached for running repairs, so you could yeah. repair them on on the fly if you like and everything which was really useful about them is you could take them really close into shore because if you can imagine that they had these like projecting mm. bottoms shall we say they'd be much more difficult to take in close to shore because you're more in danger of running against reefs and things mm-hmm. so for a lot of the surveying work that comes later these were useful characteristics
1: right okay and, and and also what I loved is that dimensions mean very little to most people but it would take 20 seconds to walk from one end to the other mm. I and mean, that's you see, in, in everybody his imagination the endeavour is huge Captain Cook is huge this is not
2: huge really it feels capacious doesn't it it should be and it was
0: in many ways is the kind of human embodiment of this boat isn't he he's also plain sturdy Mm. and sort of uh,
2: unremarkable outwardly yeah I think that's fair to say there's a lot of similarities between the two of them okay
1: so so I'm going to just focus in on this ship so 1764 is the maiden voyage but by 1769 so only five years later this turns from being a whole hauling pack horse of a ship to being a ship of discovery. How how does that rebirth?
2: happen So uh, the, the big driving factor. I mean, this is uh, this is fundamental. So um, the big catalytic factor, shall I say, is there was going to be a transit of Venus. So um, for Georgians, this was exciting stuff. this what was is a, a
1: transit of Venus? I mean, a transit no of Venus. Is, We've had one
2: recently. Physicist. I don't yeah. think any of us is going to see one again because no, uh, they, right they, they happen very rarely. Yeah. Um, they happen in pairs, eight years apart. And um,
1: you saw the
2: last one. No, no. I'm married to a physicist. So I know <laughs> the <laughs> the you we talk yeah, more yeah, about yeah. the transit of Venus later. Yeah, well. the, <laughs> yeah. yeah so, so there'd be one in, in 1761. Yeah. And there was going to be another one. And behind this transit was a lot of excitable mathematicians. Because if you could gather data from dispersed yeah. places on planet Earth, and bring all of this faithful data back, it would help them to work out the distance between the Earth and the Sun. There's another book actually by Andrea, Andrea Wolfe. Oh, he's Andrea Wolfe's
1: a brilliant book. Yes, of yeah, course. Yeah, written, she's He's written
2: um, Chasing Venus, which yeah. is, it, it became really this idea of measuring the transit, became no. a huge international enterprise, at a time of war. So even despite the fact there was a war going on between principally Britain and France, there was lots of coordination because they knew that this was a This an is important.
1: This is bigger than us.
2: Yeah, it's like a transcendent thing. It wasn't an opportunity to miss.
1: Also, a book about Linnaeus, by the way, is brilliant. So in in
2: 1761, things hadn't gone really well because it was a time of conflict. There was lots of poor planning, bad luck. There's stories of, I think, some French observers who'd gone to Siberia (laughs) with their telescopes and they were suspected to be magicians. So they were chased away (laughs) and things. Um, So there there was a sense that in in 1769, when the transit came around again, they really had to catch it. This time because yeah. they weren't going to get another chance and one of the places they had to go really really vital to get data was the middle of the south seas mm. problem was no one knew anything about the south seas was uh, it a blank on a map I and mean,
1: when we yeah. say nobody nobody knew about it well i mean there's been does the map been... just stop
2: it kind of, I describe it as a locked room in a manor house where people don't quite understand what's inside, and it really entices people. You do have occasional voyages across, so, right. so Byron, uh, Captain Byron, who I think is the grandfather of the poet, had gone across, but he went at top speed and you get didn't, goods didn't really stop. from that area, so for example, cockatoos hmm.
0: are passing out of New Guinea into India and appearing in sort of Renaissance landscape pictures painted in Florence yeah. but,
1: but, but literally I guess the coastlines are not a I mean they're not really no, but I think also at this lovely. point is very
2: important to clarify yeah. I'm talking from a, a British Western okay, point of view right. there were people oh, who we knew people, people who people have there, been living course. there yeah, and no, no, and, no, no, and, and that's um yeah. point which sometimes I missed but yeah. yeah like getting round Cape Horn was a real big sailing he's,
1: he's pointing at the Dalrymple coming up uh, is, I didn't want flaxen. to be the one to, to bring this yeah, one yeah, that's why he just
2: did that this is only well, actually, we go on to Dalrymple and moment? I'll finish yeah. off with the, the transit thing. So this was the first, the first and most important motive for the voyage. The Royal Society decided that they needed yeah. to send a ship to the middle of the Pacific. What's going to happen? And now enter Alexander... Dalrymple, who he? Do you mind if I just roll my eyes at the back of my skull?
1: Okay, who I is- had no
2: idea if Dalrymple oh. would tell <laughs> up for this story. Oh, no, no more Dalrymples.
1: Okay, cool your heels for a second. Join us after the break. We're going to do it. We're going to talk a Dalrymple. <laughs> One of the great Dalrymples of history. Join us after the break.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm
1: welcome back yes it's happening we've got a dalrymple in this podcast shock
0: go, right. for it, okay. go for it Peter go for it
1: alright Alexander Dalrymple who was he and why are we why are we talking about and ah. yet another Dalrymple of history well why? you're
2: well aware Anita that mm. the Dalrymples are like the black adders of history they oh, pop up in every generation uh, to consequence the oh.
1: wallies <laughs>
2: yeah well maybe actually I'd describe it to my <laughs> six year old boys they're like the minions who like yes. kind of they keep oh, popping up the kind of better yeah. okay. <laughs> so in this particular incarnation the Dalrymples were represented by Alexander Dalrymple yeah, and there's more you can say here as well to fill in bits that I don't know about very well. well I'm because very he, but, but he Happy does, to yeah. add some, add some details. But listen, like say <laughs> so Alexander Dalrymple, fascinating character, much maligned in history because as James as James Cooks. Reputation really soared after after his death. There was a bit of a fall guy in the story, and the fall guy was Alexander Dalrymple. But early on, let's go back to the mid 1750s. Tragedies of history. When you had a Dalrymple, who was filled with wonderlust for the East. Wanted to go out, yeah. Wanted to go out to change the world. I think he wanted to expand the knowledge of mankind. And you're not even
1: original. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> and the second part of this was to add to the glory absolutely. of his home country. I'm not sure. Exactly. That's always been one of the main motivations. Yeah. Uh, yes. Anyway, so Alexander Dalrymple, as a very young, I suppose, 18-year-old or so, 16, goes 16. to 16, 16 goes, gosh. You know, goes to India. And it's not just any time. These are absolutely crucial years. I know from your book, The Anarchy, you say that of... All the countries that were changed by the Seven Year War, India was the place that was most contorted out of its previous shape. Mm. And Alexander Dalrymple is there throughout all of this history Mm. as a very junior member, or you know, kind of he's growing through the ranks. But he's in Madras, he's working for the East India Company, and his eyes are very much upon the eastern islands and the eastern trade. And now he's thinking that the Dutch have got a monopoly over here. And there's more that the East India Company can be doing to extend British commerce in this
0: direction, because the early voyages had really just concentrated on nutmeg and the spice trade. But, in but I don't Indias. think we've
1: really said who he is. Is yeah. he so? Is he an academic, or is he an explorer, or is he a trader? Who was he? You know, who was the elder Dalrymple? What, what was what at this
2: was point, the point? He's young. It? He's clever. He's, he's a, full of he's ambition. Baby, he's from he's a, a, teenager, a yeah. He's, yeah. A, he's from a notable Scottish family, so he's got some connections. Yeah. but
0: enlightenment. As, yeah, historians as as a father and, and grandfather, yeah. friends of Sam Johnson and all that sort of world.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think so. But he does have, uh, he has a vision, he has energy, and he has ambition. These are all things which are crucial to the story that unfolds afterwards. He's working in the cartography
0: department. He's a, he's a young cartographer. He's only 18 or something. There's this moment when the East India Company captures Pondicherry. And everyone else is thrilled because it means they defeated the French. What Alexander de realises is that it gives him access now to the French map room. So he takes all the English charts of the South Seas down to the French map room in Pondicherry, and he puts the two charts together, and he realizes that there's a landmass down there that people are hitting and not properly exploring.
1: So, okay, so so we've got Dalrymple on one side, who says there's this whole unexplored bit which I want to get my hands on. And you've got the transit of Venus, which is quite separate yep. from that. And the two interests collide. Absolutely.
0: do they on this ship? so this the is Royal this is a society it. club dinner in Fleet
2: Street. Yeah, so really, 1768, uh, so seventh of January, mid 1760s. Dalrymple comes back from India. Yeah, he's in London. He makes friends with people like Benjamin Franklin, very important figures. Of course,
1: figures. He's flying his kites. Yeah, isn't he? And, yeah, and yeah, you Can yeah. tell you
2: much about Franklin another day, but the, the he's there, and what they see is a very very unusual character who has a huge knowledge of the East, which actually you know is still very sketchy in Britain, who has got a, an idea for a project. This is the age of big projects. And he says, well, you know what? He'd actually been on East India voyages out into these to various different islands. He'd got some experience of dealing with what in the period term were called native populations. Mm. I know that's a bit of a loaded term now, but um, in many ways, he's a really good candidate to take this transit voyage to the East Indies. To, to the
1: if, point where somebody like Adam Smith gets really enthused by yeah, the project. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Adam Smith, economist that is much quoted. What does he put money as well as support behind this? this I think project it's more his it support.
2: I don't think he needs... the Money becomes a problem. Adam Smith's from
0: Fife yeah. and Drumple's from Edinburgh. So they're neighbours. They're sort of other side. Other side. They're, sort of, they're, they're very much on the oh, same right. sort of side. Okay. Although Adam Smith doesn't like the East India
2: Company.
1: No, but he likes. Yeah. It, but he likes this this idea of you know exploration and expansion. Yeah, possibility I think
2: also you have to see him as a context of like the Act of Union. He's a young Scot in London, and yeah. he's also treated so with a little <laughs> how, bit of suspicion. How old
1: is Adam S- Smith? Because we always think of the venerable old economist, but how well, old is he? he's a long
2: time before. I mean, yeah. Wealth of Nations came out in 1776, okay. so so it's before. So right. it's when he was probably in his more lecturing phase when he was gathering information. So he's not, you know, he's the Adam old, Smith of old, legend. Yes, quite. No,
1: no, he's a two papers, young okay.
2: Scotsman on the make. Yeah. And, and the, the Scottish had big influence at this point yeah. in the world of politics, business and law. Sure. You can find lots of Scottish figures in here. And so Dalrymple was, I think, positioning himself within that milieu, if you want to sure. use that term. He was living in Soho Square, which is, you know, good place to live now. Nah. Good neighbours, and he's um, hanging
1: out at the Royal Institution. Yeah, he's again, hanging where all the most excellent and clever people.
2: And are you, uh, what you needed at that time was interest, yeah. and he had interest. He had yeah. he had a vision, and he had interest. And um, and throughout the early portion of 1768, you have ideas for the transit going forward. You have Dalrymple lobbying hard to take the ship. Dalrymple's particular interest is in something which he calls the Great Southern Continent. Mm. So rather than being a kind of airy idea of going to various islands it's actually this is the enlightenment we have to remember mm-hmm. and on good solid rational mathematical enlightenment, enlightenment principles ideas, yeah, yeah there was an idea of counterpoise mm-hmm. so the same land mass had to exist in the southern hemisphere as oh, in the see, north
1: otherwise the world would be well, out this so like is another thing to, <laughs> oh, how to talk so to physicists so about all
2: these
0: stray sightings that he'd seen on these maps one Dutch voyage going this direction another Spanish exactly. voyage going another and a French one and he thought put them all together and guessed re- correctly that there was a continent there and but so let's, thought it was the wrong thought exactly. far bigger than right, it actually okay, was okay. and in
2: the plainest terms I think he saw himself as a second Columbus because oh, he right. was going to be the person to he's stand Dalrymple's on
1: never underestimated no.
2: <laughs> 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 no. in my experience um, so yeah so this, this is the story of early 1768 <laughs> okay
1: all right so you've got you've got this whippersnapper Dalrymple who thinks he knows a lot um, but now he's got to put money where his mouth is yeah. basically and You've got to I got raise money yeah, yeah. i mean it, the budget is about 4000 pounds which yeah. i does, how Thirds. does that it, how does that, but how does that equate to today's money? Do you have any idea how much that expedition today? Well, I mean, so a gentleman in like pal Mall
2: would have £6,000 a year, I suppose. It'd so be it's like not a, a. How would much. you. Work? I really. I, I, I always find financial comparisons really, really okay. difficult because things are, s- are so distorted right, with okay. the past. But well, let's say. It's so an uh,
1: just slightly shy of a, a rich man's annual salary. Yeah. But he needs to get the money. And, and as William just <laughs> blew it, <laughs> the king gives it. I mean, what, is it hard to raise well, the money? Is yeah. the king gives as
2: ever with these things in history there's a bit of a, a curveball I think the Royal Society don't have enough money because the accounts haven't been kept well enough so what they have to do is appeal to the king so nice. we've got this really important transit coming up it would be of great benefit to your regal honour. Because
1: it's honour. a race, as you say, the French are after it, everyone's trying to go. Oh yeah, yeah, the, yeah French the French are the going. The French well, are really yeah, the, serious the about it. The Russians
2: might be yeah, going. Yeah, absolutely, so, yeah, So this is the kind of thing which um, elicits royal support. Right. And with the royal support and the royal money which comes duly, is the involvement of the Royal Navy the Admiralty get involved okay. so you can see here what I've described everything I've described now becomes this great blamange of motive yeah. and ownership because you've got the Royal Society and the Admiralty working together those are two separate management sure. strands
1: and then the and bright young things like Adam Smith and stuff saying this is a really good idea so you've got the little buzz going yeah, on you've about got that. and
2: you've got idea. the kind of confused motive are they going to uh, what are kind they going, are is they is
1: mapping it, or are they transitive venusing yeah, yeah. Is,
2: is it a voyage yeah. of curiosity or is yeah. it a voyage of imperial expansion sure. or is it how
0: how far as an intellectual voyage studying astronomy and, and studying the geography of the science deals how, how far does that intellectual curiosity extend. yeah exactly
1: okay so the money then the royal society doesn't have the cash but they have the influence so the king says i shall give you four thousand four thousand pounds and the money is there when does that money connect with the ship we now know as endeavor yeah
2: so this is early early march early march March.
1: are we talking what 1768 so
2: yeah we're this is the crucial month really and what i do in the book is try and go through all the all the documentary evidence which is behind this Transformation, which mm-hmm. begins at this point, so you can imagine what happens is basically Milner in the Earl of Pembroke is just uh, tootling along in his collier, comes into the Thames. Someone from the Admiralty is on the lookout for you know a boat or a bark, I should call it at this point, of about the right dimensions, about the right. Price which can stow a large amount of materials for a voyage around the world and that
1: preferably hasn't had an accident. And Milner is really quite distinctive so Milner, because he's never had a so, had has a bump. A, yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: He has this great stroke of fortune, really, because he manages to make a big profit because he could sell to an interested buyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, the Earl of Pembroke is what 17, four years old, a mm-hmm. little shy of four years old, mm-hmm. so it's in good it's condition. Good it's not, yeah, some of these collies up. would go for 100 years, they were that right. well built. Mm-hmm. Wow. um so it's it's a kind of baby mm. in and those really two. new yeah that's probably I'm trying to think of what it would be on pre-loved. eBay it would be almost pre pre-loved. yeah, pre-loved. Only recently
1: pre-loved. <laughs> yeah exactly
2: yeah. um and then so yeah it's bought by the Navy now Dalrymple's important here because mm. Dalrymple later claims many times that he was the one who selected because there was a choice. There was like, you can have that one, you can have that one on, you can have that one. Have mm-hmm. that one. Dalrymple says, we're going to have that one because it can take an extra anchor.
1: With the Earl of Pembroke. It's and he makes this space. claim
2: publicly, yeah, with right, the Earl of Pembroke. Okay, so, right. um, and I've always, um, I, I spent a lot of time trying to work out who came up with the name Endeavour as well because it's a, it's a great name. It's full of vim, you know? Yeah. And I think it might have been Dalrymple as well who gave that name Endeavour. You, you so could see, have said, there, right? The, okay, the other, the other yeah. candidates is Animal Hawke. We've
1: not mentioned Cook. Once, just know, cook. cook is this. This nothing, is, nothing to do to with cook. this. Yeah, this nothing this is the at whole all. Story,
0: yeah. Cook is just the Yorkshireman running the running the coal
1: ship. So all of this. So Dalrymple possibly says, "I want you." Takes the out of Pembroke, and then arguably says, "I'm going to give you a thrusting name like Endeavour Arguably, and then.
2: Well, you see, the, 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 it was a quite uncompromising character, William, uh, William Dowranple, Alexander, <laughs> Alexander Um He. This I don't know if the you want to. Sorry,
1: the meme. just yeah. laughing. <laughs> yes.
2: Half yes. intentional. Yeah. No, does he. Um, <laughs> the thing was a question of command who is going to be in command of this and we Darumple, never had that issue have we no Paul <laughs> <laughs> says that I really know <laughs> that this, I will go on this and it will be under my command and my yeah. command only and yeah. um, I, I, would love I think I that. think <laughs> I don't know how many buttons I'm touching here with this, yeah. with this parochial no, it's okay. history story of <laughs> You'll settle down any yeah, second
1: now. So okay. He tires himself out. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly.
2: It's okay. So history doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it does rhyme, <laughs> they say. It, anyway, <laughs> uh, so he, he's he got a clear vision that he's going to be the yeah. Columbus, as we, we pointed out. Mm. But I think... By this point, the Royal Society would have been happy with that. The Admiralty find the idea repugnant that That's a right. landsman who is not part of the Royal Navy is going to command a Royal Navy ship and with the a, a Royal And rivalry between
0: the East India Company and the Admiralty, right. so and again,
2: uh, all yeah. of this kind of explodes. And there's a particular council meeting, the Royal Society, where Dalrymple's informed that he is not going to have command. And I <laughs> he's think he's only going to have the scientific end of it. Yeah, and at which point he quits. In, oh my like, gosh! Great disasters of world
1: history. I mean, yeah. in a teenage <laughs> peak because he's teenager still. So oh, having, in, oh in his
2: view, outlined the parameters of the wow. voyage.
1: Found the found boat, the ship, name give, the boat.
2: Well, maybe, yeah, exactly. Maybe. Let's say he, he did, then yeah. exits the story very, very abruptly. Wow. and but In a the, terrific bad temper. In a terrific bad temper. So okay. often, so let me right. say, so when the story's often told, the, the story begins with this temper tantrum of a toddler Dalrymple. This is how the, the traditional <laughs> story, yeah. and he is... <laughs> <laughs> He, he is uh, he's cast in those lights It's not a great light to be shown in, but I have to say, I have uh, to much say, misrepresented I'm, I'm fami- family. <laughs> familiar with <you. laughs>
1: it's
2: kind um, of the Um In Dalrymple's defence, he he's quite magnanimous actually. Wants uh, the yes. um, <laughs> uh, he he gives a copy of his unpublished manuscript for the voyages into the east. Yeah. Which has all the information you were talking about before. He just gives it over. He just
1: hands it over? Yeah.
2: To Captain Cook, who then becomes so the name, and, and Ever So wait, cook
1: it Bastard. like this. <laughs> <laughs> and breathe. So in all this time where Darumple is doing all this really quite extraordinary stuff, you know, amazing actually for somebody this young to get, you know, the momentum and the money and everything else and the ship and the name yeah. maybe... Um, is, who's Cook? <laughs> who so cook, who right. is Cook? And where so is Cook? I, 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 I kind of
2: point out in, in yeah. the book that you know at the start of March they had. Um, Dalrymple and no ships, so they had to find a ship yeah. and they had the commander by the end of the month they had the ship but they didn't have the commander, commander so it, yeah. turned, it was like they were thrown from the horns of one dilemma to another and basically they had to look around and find who was available and who was available this is one of the lucky strikes in Royal Naval it history it depends how you look just, at it <laughs> just, well exactly but for the Royal Navy in particular yes. Cook was there you know, he, so, was, he so was on he was just
1: serving. I mean, he was serving.
2: So he was, what he was, was his
1: track record and how old was he? Give us an idea.
2: He'd grown up in the collier trade. He yeah. then joined the Royal Navy as a, uh, you know, kind of an ordinary seaman. And for probably 10 years, I can't tell you precisely, yeah. he'd served in various lowly positions. He'd become a master. Um, but he on, knew
1: these ships. If he was working in colliers, he knew this Well, there's a, there's a kind
2: of thing about Cook when he said, he's once asked why he left the, the, the collier trade. And he says, I want to go and seek my fortune. Yeah. And the really weird thing about uh, Cook is that his fortune turns out to be a Whitby Collier ship waiting for oh, him. Yeah. So it's like yeah, a rejoining. No yeah, yeah. Um, he'd been out. He'd been doing things like he was at the Battle of Quebec, for example. He'd surveyed the St. Lawrence before that famous um, moment with Wolfe. And then later on, he'd been out but in them, Newfoundland. Both of them were surveyors, weren't they? Yeah. of them knew how to do a map. So this hydrographer, it's kind mm. of a new type of person. It wasn't just... A good sailor he was a new kind of scientific character he okay. knew how to use he'd like have a that new iphone if he was around alexander Impel's
0: visiting card he was hydrographer
2: yeah exactly. so he had
1: instruments so he knew he measured things so he, he recorded things yeah. and you know but
2: okay. he, i think by this point he had a he had a reputation for a supreme competence he okay. could do things so the well. royal
1: navy says right okay darren flounced off in a mood <laughs> so what are we gonna why? do? Why are you looking so pleased with <laughs> no, <no. in> that? <laughs> uh, so we'll find another chat. This guy, uh, Cook. Yeah. Let's find Cook. Yeah. So Cook immediately accepts this and is and, and is given the endeavour as his And year. Cook
0: is the opposite of Drimple in that he is he, he doesn't have tantrums. He, no. he he's is cool is as a cucumber. Completely steady. Mm. Yeah. Doesn't know any of this so, scientific stuff, yeah. but right. he is completely hundred percent reliable, which is why then they have to bring in another scientist who is. Well, Joseph
2: Banks, right. Okay, so (laughs) Banks really... Just, just before this... you get to
1: Banks, just talking about Cook's personality and being the anti-Dalrymple, <laughs> you know, emotional cries at the drop of a hat. <laughs> uh, uh, this is a pen portrait of Cook uh, from his biographer, J.C. Beaglehole. Yeah, Beagle Hole, name. Fantastic name, Beaglehole. Uh, the genius of Cook was not in the ordinary sense creative, nor was it precocious. There was nothing aesthetic, nothing of brilliance about him. He would have been startled by the idea that anything he did might touch the emotions, his energy of mind was that of a mature kind, that is, on the intellectual side, critical, a sort of analytical and detective Energy on the practical and constructive side. It was the energy of planning, of administration, and of foresight. He sounds quite dull to be with. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, I'd rather hang out with Dalrymple, To be honest, uh, no, you'd actually
2: prefer to hang out with Joseph Banks. You would so right. well, Joseph hang with Joseph, okay, Banks. Right, Joseph Banks. Joseph Banks. We have to say, okay. is, is a classic Anita Up. All right, no. come on. He
0: is Fred from, sort of. yeah, <laughs> from
1: accounts. Fabio from accounts. <laughs> you just created <laughs> this image of me, but I'll go with it. Tell me about Banks. What did he look like? Was he dreamy? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Think, think of a young David Attenborough, oh. but like 1951, kind okay. of scampering around. I mean, he
1: had me I, I was thinking that yes. he
2: had the yeah. absolutely gold star education. He went to Harrow and Eton, right. then Christ College, Oxford. I mean, he was he was a Lincolnshire gentry family, lots of money, and charming, he, charming, charming, good artistic. looking. But and Banks had this mania for botany, which was the the kind of sexy science of the day um, after Linnaeus Linnaeus is still alive yeah Linnaeus was really transformed this idea of botany into something that was you know really revolutionary and exciting so it was a great process of classification going on and Banks they often say if you want to understand someone, look at the, what the world was like when they were 20 years old. And when Banks was 20, botany was just the thing, and you could, you know, um, you could botanize wherever. But the real draw for Banks was finding new stuff to expand knowledge. And so he'd already gone across to uh, North America and Newfoundland again, I think, um, on one of his botanical expeditions. And this one has great phrase from Banks, where Gonna he look says, "Look up his
1: face, by the way, while you're talking. Yeah, but yeah. Great yeah.
2: About it. The great quote from from Banks is like uh, he says." Uh, any blockhead can do a grand tour my grand tour shall be one round the whole world you know so he's wow, okay. so he's full of kind of intent I and action I see what you mean and he's- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: okay all right so okay so, so he's charming this. he's clever he's directed
0: and you've written any en- enigmatic complex
2: driven <laughs> okay well there <laughs> we go
0: you tell the frog story my favorite story in your book
2: he had this thing uh, as i say he was into interacting with nature something that he got from his mother who taught him very early on that nature was something to be embraced and interacted with and so on and um one of the great contemporary fears in nature was the dangerous venomous nature of frogs and toads and things like this and with a party of friends Banks had stumbled across some frog I think which he demonstrated was completely placid by picking up and so the story goes it jumped into Banks's mouth as he was explaining <laughs> and um, and Love this became story. one of these anecdotes but one which I think tells you a little bit about like Banks wasn't too perturbed a lot of people no, a lot of Georgians no that's
1: very Attenborough isn't it oh, whoops yeah, <laughs> no, yeah it just and so I talking, know actually yeah.
2: even today David yeah. Attenborough talks about Joseph Banks being one of his great heroes yeah. and when they had a, an exhibition at the British Library a few years ago um, David Attenborough opened that up I should also say out of the two you know like Cook and Banks Banks was the more imperialistic of the two, I'd say. He was the one who uh, thought less about indigenous populations, for example. Okay. He was he was on a drive to find knowledge, and so he, he had was- that
1: narrow field of vision that sometimes scientists do have. Can I read a thing about him hmm. as well, which I I, I really liked? Um, Banks's journal shows a man. Who set to his collecting every morning with the cheer and spring of a pastor on Easter Sunday, mm. which is kind of this evangelicism about you know what he was doing, blind yeah. to everything else. And his
2: yeah. his journal, his journal, the voyaging journal, Banks's Endeavour voyaging journal, is the great, I think, enlightenment document because it's full of movement, it's full of observation, it's completely empirical, it's quite funny in times. Uh, Banks has got this, he's got this ability that, to, I mean, he doesn't have any kind of introspective reflections that you might get in a 21st century memoir so when people thinking about their emotional health and state well, and things not, like that's not how no, scientists that's not how role. Banks works yeah. he yeah. just he looks outwards he sees things yeah. he, and he classifies them and he's like a, he's got this Labradorish excitement so everywhere he, is he a goes a Labrador exactly yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he is a Labrador yeah. Yeah.
1: well look okay so we've got we've got the Labrador We've got Banks.
2: And no Dalrymple.
1: We've got, oh, no, we've Dalrymple. got no, we haven't got the, the Scott, Scott Terrier. <laughs>
2: <The laughs> Dalrymple's flounced <laughs> off yes. in, a,
1: in a half and a yappy <laughs> but, half. We've got Cook, who would be, I don't know, the Basset hand, quite sort of dual <laughs> sad, mm. but the stage is set. And join us for the next episode of this uh, epic Three Ships. Thank God you knew the uh, Christmas Carol. On Thursday, unless, of course, you're a member of the club, in which case you can just click on it right now and it's available Well, how do they do that if they're not
0: just sign up at empirepoduk.com where you can also get peter's wonderful book for a discount
1: so till then it's goodbye from me anita Arnand.
0: goodbye from me william Durymple.